0: Now, I, uh, the thing that that I read that really did it for Germany was the blockades. Isn't that true?
1: Yeah, that was uh, instigated by Churchill. Uh, right. You know, that's where he just emerged uh, there as a young man, a war-mongering SOB. And they had a total blockade around Germany. I forget exactly when it started, but it was uh, devastating. It caused the, the deaths of Almost a million German people started to blockade. Women, children, old people mostly, but uh, several million people's their health was ruined as a result of this. After, okay, the Germans had made the peace offer, a status quo anti-peace offer. Let's all go back home, nobody wins, nobody loses, let's stop the war. That was in 1916. Yeah. Uh, mm, Said no, and when the, the United States came in on Britain's side, well, Germany simply could not... Uh, stand up against this overwhelming combination of forces, right. and so they had an armistice in November the 11th, ni- uh, 1918, yeah. and uh, it was a it was an armistice. They were supposed to stop fighting until they could work out a peace agreement, but the Allies treated it as a German surrender. Right. And they got together in the in Paris at the Versailles Palace in 1919 and worked out this peace agreement, which wound up as the Versailles uh, Treaty. They called the Germans, they still had this blockade. Right. For seven months after the war was over, they maintained a starvation blockade, which was immoral and inhuman, sure. actually. And they called the Germans in and said, Okay, sign here. And they read it over and they were appalled because the treaty held them responsible for starting the war, which they did not do. Right. And uh, held them responsible for all the death and destruction uh, caused by the war. Right. And they finally. Uh, imposed reparations of some 35 billion dollars in money at that time. I guess it's in the trillions in modern uh, currency.
0: Well, hello there. Pull up a chair. You might need to get into a reclining position at some point. This is a very tough show for me to record. Um, I've been working... Well, let me get to this part first so I don't lose track of myself here. Um, Where was I? Where was I? Okay. Oh, the pipeline in Russia to this week. Okay, well, I don't know. Just think about this. The U.S. has been yapping about wanting to get Europe to buy oil from the United States for, I don't know, Trump kept talking about it. I take them out their word, right? Um, and then, you know, Russia did the pipeline. So is this an angry attempt to cut off Russia and make it look like it was Russia? Well, I don't know. Look at my shows about the history of the United States and explosives. You know, TNT, their favorite trick, so... Yeah. Now, clearly I wasn't there, and neither were you, but I would have to say that, yeah, the U.S. government is behind that whole thing. So, anyways, and you'll understand more when you listen to the show. So, anyway, so, um... The show is very dramatic, okay? But I'm not... I've never tried to edit myself. It gets a little bit crazy at points, and I'm not going to start editing myself right now. This is the way it goes, so, um... Yeah, it's a it's a very emotional show for a lot of reasons, and is hard to see to understand the suffering, and so yeah, so um, be forewarned about that. Um, but I'm not here to share my research and decide what you can handle and can't handle. So anyway, so what I thought I would do because it's such a horrific show, and you'll get my own black humor in this because you know there's all these stories about. Um, United States military people giving candy to kids after World War II. Well, you'll catch my humor when you hear the the little stories about that. Um, Those were the stories that they painted us at home. Oh, look what a great thing the U.S. is doing over there. Those soldiers have figured out how to get candy to kids. So, yeah. yeah, it's a pretty tragic show. It's a pretty tragic show. I have to say it's probably one of the more intense ones that I've recorded so far. But anyway, it is what it is, right, kids? So, anyways... Pull up a chair, enjoy the show, and uh, I will talk with you later. Be safe out there.
2: But more terrible still were the concentration camps, which from the beginning had been the conspirators' chief weapon against opposition of every kind. German anti-Nazis were the first victims, but with the war advancing, their numbers swelled to include citizens of all the nations of Europe. Their fate is described by witness Rudolf Huss. I was in command at Auschwitz until December 1st, 1943, and estimate that at least two and a half million victims were exterminated there by gassing and burning. At least another half million died due to starvation and disease, making a total of about three million dead. These included approximately 20,000 Soviet prisoners of war. The rest of the victims were approximately 100,000 German Jews and a great many citizens, mostly Jews, from Holland, France, Belgium, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Greece, and other countries. Medical experiments, too, were standard procedure at many concentration camps. These included lowering the body temperature to 28 degrees centigrade, high-altitude tests and pressure chambers, experiments with poison bullets and contagious diseases, and even sterilization.
0: to set the stage here before I get into the conversation about the starving of Germany. Um, Let's talk about um, what happened to Germany after World War II, okay? World War II had been a costly and bloody battle that created worldwide chaos. Once it was finally over, those that were in power wanted to make sure Germany would not have the capability to wage another war. The reigning world powers included the United States under FDR, Britain under Winston Churchill, Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. The United States, Britain, and the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union were known as the Big Three, and they met to discuss the fate of Germany. In February of 1945, they met at the Yalta Conference, Y-A-L-T-A Conference in the Soviet Union, and decided that the final partition, partitioning and division of Germany, they decided that there, okay, Germany needed to be divided into four post-war occupied zones. They decided to set up military zones of occupation in Germany after World War II and split up parts of Germany. In late 1945, they began another round of meetings. FDR had died in April, so the new American president, Harry Truman, attended the conference. This time, they met outside of Berlin at the Potsdam Conference. And this will come up quite a bit in this conversation here. It's P-O-T-S-D-A-M. These things are very easy to research, kid. Just type in Potsdam Conference and wiki, and you will have a world of information at your fingertips. At the meeting, they further hashed out exactly how Germany would be divided among the United States, the Soviet Union... Britain, and France. On August the 1st, and that would be we? 1945, the Big Three signed the Potsdam Agreement. The decision was made to take away any military capabilities from Germany and divide the country into four zones of Allied occupation. Germany was divided after World War II because it was to blame for World War I and World War II. The allied powers did not want Germany to have to to have the possibility of waging another war. Germany had also forced ethnic Germans out of the country and raped and starved many of the German citizens. Well, I think you'll figure out as I continue on in this show today that well Germany was Germans were being starved by these psychopaths right they weren't starving each other so the relations between the Soviet Union and the United States became strained and it was determined that the best course of action concerning the occupation of Germany was to divide the country into two halves The beginnings of the Cold War were evident by 1947 due to different ideologies between the United States and the Soviet Union. Berlin, the capital of Axis Germany, had previously been split in half among the big three. So they previously decided to split it in half. Concerning the division of Germany after World War II, the division was reconfigured. Berlin was located in Soviet-controlled territory but it was decided that Berlin needed to be divided. The allied countries of Britain, France, and the United States controlled West Germany, including West Berlin. The Soviet Union occupied East Germany and East Berlin. Due to the Soviet occupation of East Germany, a communist government with a socialistic economy developed. West Germany developed a capitalist economy and a better way of life since it was occupied by the Allied forces. And just, just listen along. I'm not sure that anything was really too swell after all of this, okay, because of the mass starvation that went on. So uh, I don't want to jump ahead here, but I'm just trying to scan through to set the stage here for all of this horror uh so yeah, there was a lot going on between East and West Germany. Not not important. I mean, it, it's very critical and important. But for right this second, no, we have other crimes that are far more hideous here. Um, it's always about divide and conquer, right? I, I don't know why that simple concept is so hard for the majority to, to um, calculate. But okay, well, I've already talked enough about all this Marshall Plan all the other horror stories in the next segment or two. Um, Yeah, and I already talked about this guy, Albert Benke, but I'll say it here again because you can't say this kind of stuff enough. <clears throat> we looky-looky to way too often, kids. We just didn't understand what was going on. We thought they were in charge and here to help us, and look what we unfold. <clears throat> Captain Albert R. Benke, a U.S. Navy medical doctor, stated in regard to Germany, from 1945 to the middle of 1948, no, excuse me, <clears throat> from <clears throat> from 1945 to the middle of 1948 one saw the probable collapse, disintegration and destruction of a whole nation. Germany was subject to physical and psychic trauma unparalleled in history. Banke concluded that the Germans under the Allies had fared much worse than the Dutch under the Germans and for far longer. And I will get into that part of the story in segments rolling out. I just wanted to set the stage of who were the groups of monsters that started this whole divvying up of Germany back then, right? So just to put the rest of what's going to transpire, this show is very sad, okay? It's it's a very sad story, but, you know, we've looked away for long enough. We got them to uh, wipe out our own instincts about things. We got them to be in charge we got them to turn against each other and the money thing has gotten people to turn against each other even more viciously and while everybody was looking the other way this horror was just going on right out <clears throat> i mean this is like if you think about it okay we used to we were told by you know the, the 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 psychopath researchers that Ted Bundy was our biggest fear right well the the biggest fear should have been them all along right and it was a pretty clever deception to get us to look everywhere else but at the truth and the truth became uncomfortable for a lot of us. And so we turned away from each other. And that, to me, is the axis point of when we really lost it. And what's going on now? Well, a lot of sitting around and wondering about things. But, you know, I've talked enough about this. So just don't be a coward, okay? Don't let that fear run your life because this isn't all we have, okay? Just remember that. This isn't all we have. And um, there's this, the reason I'm telling you this story about Germany today is because these i I can't i can't move on to the rest of what i want to talk about until i talk about this part okay i'm not here to gatekeep you i'm not here to say wow this seems a little bit painful to talk about i'm here to share what my research is leading me to okay so buckle up it just gets a lot more tragic as we go along but we need to take a look at these things because this is how we got here so here we go Okay, so why am I talking about Germany today? Well, lots of reasons. The reason, the main reason is because I believe that Germany was the last major scene of their crime in this human experimentation thing going, right? And the United States is now their next big human experiment, the biggest they've had going on. So that's why I've been looking at Germany because winding my way back to India, what happened in India in a nutshell, they were left robbed of all their natural resources. They were you know, left with a very low um, intelligence rate, let's say, which they've worked very, very hard to regain. And so Germany is the next, Place along the line here, so I found this fascinating piece because you know a lot of research is being done about some of these things, and I've talked enough about why I think it's Germany before this country because, um, well, Germany in the early 1900s was where they cooked up. Um, Communism and all that stuff. So Germany was a key point in their strategy, and you know, to me, it starts to look more and more like we're looking at the last couple hundred years that this whole um, drama stage started started taking place, right? And because Germany was a pretty key point, um, like critical point, I found the most fascinating piece, and I've never found a piece that I felt so compelled to share with you. Okay. Because. What I was looking into, because I could see in a nutshell that the history of India was left devastated. Every place these people go through becomes a pile of ashes, right? And I think they've done a lot of things correct in setting up what's to become the pile of ashes for the United States, because it was at this key juncture during Germany that they were getting all these psychological things cooked up. They were getting all of these tricks cooked up, right? So kind of jumping ahead of some of these things, but anyway, so, yeah, so, because I've been looking at um, the overview of India and how that country was left, and to, uh, I, you know, in my research is to look for patterns, right, well, clearly, these people have some pretty distinct patterns of destroying everything they left behind, so, anyhow, so, Because of all that, I went looking for any new research about Germany. Like what was the status of Germany after World War II? Because clearly I could with my own eyes see that India was left extraordinarily devastated, right? Just like every place they've been to. So, and that helps to build my research about these psychopaths, right? Because they're not, they're not Jews. And this was, I don't want to bury the lead, okay? because I was actually working on telling you exactly who they are and their entire structure with the money and the wars and all that stuff. But I want to tell this story about Germany first. So please, I have to just focus on this for right now, okay? Because then when I get to the part next about their structure, because I know exactly who they are now, and it's no longer kind of vague in my mind, okay? (laughs) So I can clearly say right now, the Jew was part of the act, okay? So, anyway, so moving on here. So, I found this fascinating piece about Germany. And, um, you know, remember, I was an avid watcher of every World War II documentary these people produced, right? So, anyways, this was a very, very interesting thing because I've been saying all along that what happened in Germany never stopped, right? Because we had that base... The United States set up in Germany, NATO was set up in Germany, Um, and the U.S. base, well, I stumbled on that base a few years ago when um, I realized that that base after World War II grew in huge, huge strength and size, and so that led me to wandering around Africa a few years ago, but now there's more data about all the bases in Africa, but that led me wandering around Africa because... What the deal was about Africa in a nutshell was that the base the U.S. set up in Germany around the time of World War II that grew so big, what happened was, from what I understand, they started setting up those bases in Africa to extend the efforts of the base located in Germany, okay? So this will kind of show where this trail's going here, right? And... 1940s was a very significant time. They were cooking up ways to control our nutrition and all that kind of stuff. So let me tell you what's going on with this article. And I'd like to just kind of, I'll try to read it as much and stick to the point as I can. Um, Welcome to my world. So anyway, so the article is called Starvation of Germany After World War II. And a man named John Weir, W-E-A-R, wrote it. And it came from 2019. Allied forces, Allied policies, forced starvation is a title. Captain Albert R. Benke, a US Navy medical doctor, stated in regard to Germany from 1945 to the middle of 1948, one saw the probable collapse, disintegration and destruction of a whole nation. Germany was subject to physical and psychic trauma unparalleled in history. Benke concluded that the Germans under the Allies had fared much worse than the Dutch under the Germans and for far longer. Normal adult Germans in the American and British zones were rationed only 1550 calories per day. The average official calorie ration for ger- rations, excuse me, for Germans in the French zone was only 1400 calories per day. The actual calories received in the American, British, and French zones were often far less than these official amounts. And it was well known that these official ration amounts were not sufficient to maintain a healthy population. Herbert Hoover told President Truman that 1,550 ration is wholly incapable of supporting health. Hoover estimated that 2,200 calories per day is a minimum in a nation for healthy human beings. So they're recommending 1500 calories and this dude is saying well wait a minute we should have 2200 calories okay got that point there kids so this is how eugenics takes place right total eugenics action here right start to restrict the food okay the destruction of the german infrastructure during the war had made it inevitable that some germans would starve to death before roads rails canals and bridges could be restored. However, even when much of the German infrastructure had been repaired, the Allies deliberately withheld food from Germany. Continuing the policies of their predecessors, U.S. President Harry Truman and British Prime Minister Clement Att- Attlee, Attlee, they allowed the spirit um of this conference called the Yalta Conference, okay, to dictate their policies toward Germany. The result was that millions of Germans were doomed to slow death by starvation. The Allies had studied German food production during the war. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that was going on in the 40s, and if I haven't talked about it, please remind me, and I will talk about it, because that's how I found that Uh, Cleckley the the guy who supposedly started the study about psychopath he was involved in food also I don't know if I ever brought up that key point there but anyways so let me continue on here Um, so the allies had studied German food production during the war so they knew what to expect once Germany was defeated The Allies knew that to strip off the rich farmlands of the East and give them to the Poles and Russians deprived Germany of over 25% of her arable land. Germans also starved in the East because the Russians confiscated so much food and virtually all of the factories. The French forced famine in their zone by the seizure of food and housing. The famine in the French zone went on for years. The danger of hunger and starvation was slow to abate throughout Germany. The famine that began in Germany in 1945 spread over all of occupied Germany and continued into 1948. This famine was camouflaged as much as possible by the Allied armies and governments. Many Germans were prepared to see the Allies as liberating angels at first, but they soon realized that the Allies were adopting policies designed to hurt Germany's recovery. What do I always say? Evil has to come package as help. That is how they have tricked us time. And time again, so let me continue on. I could get on a real rampage at this point, but anyway, so <clears throat> excuse me. Just follow along for the patterns, okay? Just follow along for the patterns of what was going on in Germany and what's going on here, and I'll try to keep my mouth shut, and keep it so <laughs> because fertilizers now entering the picture. So anyway, so back here, so. They were adopting policies designed to hurt Germans recovery. The drastic reduction of fertilizer production under the Morgenthau plan, that's M-O-R-G-E-N-T-H-A-U plan. That was a plan that drastically reduced fertilizer. These things are all very easy to find online, kids. Just type in those words. That hurt Germany's capacity to grow her own food. The use of German prisoners as slave labor in allied countries subtracted from the labor force needed to bring in the reduced harvest. So let me see here. They used German prisoners as slave labor in the allied countries. Oh, so they were using slave labor, I guess, to build up industry. So that uh, didn't give them enough... uh, People, slaves, to bring in the reduced harvest. So, yeah. German prisoners who worked as slave laborers in the United Kingdom and France were horrified upon arriving home to find their families starving. Well, I, I lost a little bit of track there, but you get the picture here, right? Unable to feed themselves adequately from home production, the Germans tried desperately to increase production for export. However, the Germans were seriously hampered by the Allied reparations policy, which prevented them from exporting goods to increase the shrunken German food supply. The Allies had decided to take huge reparations amounting to at least $20 billion. In 2018 dollars, that would amount to, let me see here, 278 billion dollars. Okay, so at the time it was 20 billion dollars. Okay, so do you follow the patterns here with their abilities to get everybody crippled by debt? Okay, so even as late as 1949, 268 factories were removed from Germany wholly or in part. The reduction in exports for food ensured that the German people would keep on starving. Allies not only prevented the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, from distributing food to German POWs, but they also refused requests by the ICRC to bring provisions into Germany for civilians. In the winter of 1945, ICRC donations to Germany were returned with the recommendation that the donations be used in other parts of war Europe war-torn Europe. The return of the ICRC donations was made was made even for Irish and Swiss contributions that had been specifically raised to benefit Germany. It was not only until March of 1946 that ICRC donations were permitted to reach the American zone, in Germany. So it looks like they got them for about a year there. The Allies also prevented various private relief agencies from, provi- from providing food to German civilians. For example, the Swiss Relief Fund started a charity, a charity to feed a meal once a day to a thousand Bavarian children for two months. The American Zone Occupation Authorities decided that this aid should not be accepted. One Quaker attempting to provide relief to Germans said, the U.S. Army made it difficult for relief. In the United Kingdom in October of 1945, even the concept of voluntary aid via food parcels from British civilians was Athenum to Whitehall. Such aid to Germany was strictly forbidden. U.S. Private Martin Breach described the famine conditions in Germany in 1945. He went on to say, Famine began to spread among the German civilians also. It was a common sight to see women German up to their elbows in our garbage cans looking for something edible. That is, if they weren't chased away. When I interviewed
3: Tootsie Rolls seem simple enough. That piece of gooey chocolate wrapped up in a perfect little bite. But believe it or not, these tasty treats saved the lives of US Marines in the Korean War.
4: So good. In
3: 1950, at the North Korean Chosen Reservoir, U.S. Marine troops were engaged in battle. The Marines were running out of ammunition and called for an airdrop of 60-millimeter mortar rounds. Codename for these bullets, Tootsie Roll. When the supplies fell from the sky, troops were surprised to find boxes filled with the actual candies.
5: Where are the bullets?
3: This fluke turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Freezing cold temperatures had cracked vehicle fuel lines, leaving troops stranded. And although the candies were frozen, they softened easily in the mouths of servicemen.
4: Mm, So good.
3: Marines quickly realized they could melt the candies down to a putty and seal the broken pipes. Good as new. When the chocolate refroze, they were able to drive to safety in their newly functional vehicles. The Marines who successfully escaped the reservoir admit that Tootsie Rolls had a big hand in their survival and they call themselves the chosen few. I'd call that a pretty sweet victory.
0: reality of who these monsters are shines through here, and I can't get through reading this sometimes, so let me, let me try to do it, okay? And this person went on to say, when I interviewed mayors of small towns and villages, I was told their supply of food had been taken away by displaced persons, foreigners who had worked in Germany, who packed the food on trucks and drove away. When I reported this, the response was a shrug. I never saw any Red Cross at the camp or helping civilians, although their coffee and donut stands were available everywhere else for us. In the meantime, the Germans had to rely on the sharing of hidden stores until the next harvest. American soldiers also stole from the German people and let German children go hungry american aviation hero charles Lindbergh wrote german children look in through the window we have more food than we need but regulations prevent giving it to them it is difficult to look at them i feel ashamed of myself of my people as i eat and watch those children they are not to blame for the war they are hungry children Right, have we to stuff ourselves while they look on, well-fed men eating, leaving unwanted food on plates, while hungry children look as leaving unwanted while hungry children look on. There is an abundance of food in the American Army, and few men seem to care how hungry the German children are outside the door. The Allies adopted additional policies that caused starvation in Germany. Food production and food imports came under specific attack when the German fishing fleet was prevented from going to sea for a year. The Allies also used false accounting to take credit to not credit the value of some German exports to the German account so as they were trying to get money out, they were cheating them, okay? This is their pretty distinct pattern, if you ask me, so. Um, simply stated, many valuable goods were stolen from Germans beyond the reparations agreed upon by the Allies. They give, they take, they steal. How much more obvious can any of this get? The German people put up a brave struggle for survival despite the harsh conditions. Malcolm Muir, publisher of Business Week, stated, "After a five-week tour of Germany, the Germans are making every effort to help themselves. Good for them. Don't be cowards, people. Just don't be cowards. We're the next Germany on speed. Just don't be cowards. Take care of the children." It- It was not unusual to see a milch cow hitched to a plow, a woman leading the cow, and a small boy guiding the plow. However, despite the best efforts of German farmers, the food situation became critical and catastrophic. An official of the food branch of the American military government made the following report concerning the conditions in Germany. Oh, this is going to be good. This is what the U.S. military said. Now, remember, these are the actors who set this whole thing up, right? This, this, these are their words, okay? The greatest, and I've also been talking about them being fucking sadists, okay? The, this is their quote. The greatest famine catastrophe of recent centuries is upon us in Central Europe. Our government is letting down our military government in the food deliveries, it promised. Although what General Clay's, Draper, and Hess asked for and were promised was the barest, barest minimum for the survival of the people. So they asked for the barest minimum. This is what they requested from the beginning, okay? You catching this part here, kids? So they gave them the bare minimum. So they went on to say, well... We will be forced to reduce the rations from 1,550 calories to 1,000 or less calories. Now, remember earlier on in this story here, they were plotting this calorie deal, okay? And I can also tie it to those other psychos. But anyway, so they went on to say, The few buds of democracy will be burned out in the agony of death of the age, the women, and the children. See, this is what fucking cowards these psychopaths are. Who do they get first? The women and the children and us old people, okay? That, my friend, is how a coward operates. And I'm not a coward, and I don't want you to be a coward either. Only a coward would go after the weakest. So anyway, so, the British and we are going on record as the ones who let Germans starve. The Russians will release at the height of the famine, substantial food stores they have locked up. So I guess the Russians did some humanitarian stuff, okay? But the British and the US were the ones who let the Germans starve. So let's be very clear about this point here, okay? So the same gang of two that we're following, okay? As in the city of London, all this other stuff, so. Aside from the inhumanity involved, It is so criminally stupid to give such a performance of incredible fumbling before the eyes of the world. It makes all the many hardworking officers of the Office of Military, Government, Food, and Agricultural Branch ashamed, American journalist and radio broadcaster Dorothy Thomas wrote. Everything is black and white. They always show us both sides. Just keep looking for the truth, kids. Just keep looking. This is what this Dorothy Thomas person wrote. The children of Europe are starving. Six years of war, indescribable destruction, and the lunatic policies which have added to the disintegration inherited from the collapse of the Nazi regime have done their work. Germany, and with it Europe, is skidding into the abyss. The facts are at last being revealed through what was amounted to a conspiracy of silence here. The war was fought by the West in the name of a Christian civilization, the Four Freedoms, and the dignity of those against who were perpetuating crimes against humanity. So the whole thing started because people believed they were going after somebody who was perpetuating crimes against humanity and that person according to them would be the actor named Hitler right so it appears to me these very same people who claimed they were there to fight Hitler were doing even more extraordinary see how this whole thing is playing out here right the blame got dumped on Hitler but it was these people doing it all right under the guise of saying that Hitler was doing it right so okay um but policies which must inevitably result in the post-war extermination of tens of thousands of children are also crimes against humanity. The desperation of the German population for food was observed by Catherine Hume, a deputy director of one of Barbarians' many displaced persons camp. She wrote about the scramble for Red Cross packages at the camp that she was in, which was called the Wild Fucking Camp. W-I-L-D-F-L-E-C-K-E-N camp. She went on to say, It is hard to believe that some shiny little tins of meat paste and sardines could almost start a riot in the camp, that bags of Lipton's tea and tins of Varrington House coffee and bars of vitaminized chocolate could drive men almost insane with desire. But this is so. This is as much a part of the destruction of Europe as those gaunt ruins of Frankfurt. Only this is the ruin of the human soul. It is a thousand times more painful to see. One survey of the American zone concluded that 60% of the Germans were living on a diet that would lead to disease and malnutrition. By October of 1945, Random weighing of German adults revealed a fall-off of body weight of 13 to 15 percent. Children, pregnant women, and the elderly suffered the most. Their diets were lacking sufficient protein and vitamins. The cause of rickets were common among German infants. The German Central Administration of Health reported the deadly effect of malnutrition. The poor people that are emaciated to the bone, their clothes hang loose on their bodies. The lower extremities are like the bones of a skeleton. Their hands shake as though with palsy. The muscles of the arms are withered. The skin lies in folds and is without le- le- elasticity. The joints spring though, the, the joint spring as though broken. The weight of the woman of average height and build has fallen below 110 pounds. Often women of childbearing age weigh no more than 65 pounds. The number of stillborn children is approaching the number of those born alive and an increasing proportion of these die in a few days. Even if they come into the world of normal weight, they start immediately to lose weight and die shortly. Very often the mothers cannot stand the loss of blood and childbirth and perish themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. Infant mortality has reached a horrifying height of 90%. The German people starved while the Americans around them lived in luxury. American historian Ralph Franklin Keeling wrote, <coughs> While the Germans around them starved, wearing rags, and live in hovels, the American aristocrats live in unaccustomed ease and luxury. Their wives must be specifically marked to protect them from licidious advances. They live in the finest homes from which they drove the Germans. They swagger about in fine liveries and gorge themselves on diets three times as great as they allow the Germans and allow displaced persons diets twice as great. When we tell the Germans their low rations are necessary because food is so short, they naturally either think we are lying to them, or regard us as, as inhumane for taking the lion's, share, the lion's share of these short supplies while they and their children starve. George Keenan was also outraged by the disparity in living conditions between Germans and Americans in Germany. Kessner stated, Each time I had come across with a sense of sheer horror at the spectacle of these horde of my compatriots and their dependents camping in luxury among the, among the ruins of a shattered na- na- nation community, ignorant of the past, oblivious to the abundant evidence of tragedy all around them, inhabiting the same sequestered villas as the Gestapo and SS had just abandoned and enjoying the same privileges, flaunting their silly supermarket luxuries in the face of variable ocean of deprivation, hunger, and wretchedness, setting an example of empty materialism and culture poverty, cultural poverty before a people desperately in need of spiritual and intellectual guidance.
4: March, 1963. The CIA is planning to kill Fidel Castro using his greatest guilty pleasure, a milkshake. Mm. The U.S. feared Castro's anti-American views, and according to Castro's bodyguard, the CIA plotted 638 times to sabotage him, trying things like chemical powder on his boots, a bacteria-lined scuba suit, spike cigars, and exploding cigars. But the closest the CIA came to killing Castro? Poisoning his chocolate milkshake at his favorite ice cream parlor. The dictator had an obsession with dairy. Ice cream, milkshakes, you name it. I mean, it gets hot in Cuba. So the CIA convinced mafia members to carry out the plot. The mobsters delivered a pill containing poison to a waiter who would slip the capsule into Castro's milkshake. The waiter placed the pill in the freezer until the time was right. But the pill froze to the freezer's lining, and when he went to pick it up, the pill ripped open, spilling poison everywhere. So the would-be assassin waiter abandoned the plot. The mission was a bust. Castro went on to become one of the world's longest ruling leaders, arrogantly boasting, if surviving assassination attempts were an Olympic event, I would win the gold medal.
0: Okay, I'm picking up on the other side here. Um, Let me see, where was I? Okay, um... Now, the other side of this coin rushes in to help, so let me start off here. The title is, U.S. Senators and British Humanitarians Protest Starvation Policies. Some informed political leaders spoke out against the Allied policy of mass starvation of the German people. In an address before the U.S. Senate on February the fifth, 1946, Senator Homer E. Capehart of Indiana said in part, The fact can no longer be suppressed, namely the fact that it has been and continues to be the deliberate policy of a confidential and conspiratorial clique within the policy-making circles of this government to draw and quarter a nation now to object misery. In this process, this clique, like a pack of hyenas struggling over the bloody entrails of a corpse, also inspired by a sadistic and fanatical hatred, are determined to destroy the German nation and the German people, no matter what the consequences. At Potsdam, the representatives of the United States, the United Kingdom, And the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic solemnly signed the following. It was a Declaration of Principles and Purposes. And they said, It is not the intention of the Allies to destroy or enslave the German people. They signed this at some event called Potsdam. P-O-T-S-D-A-M. Okay. It said, Mr. President, the cynical and savage repudiation of these solemn declarations, which has resulted in a major catastrophe, cannot be explained in terms of ignorance or incompetence. This repudiation, not only the Potsdam Declaration, but also a law of God and men, has been deliberately engineered with such a malevolent, cunning, and with such diabolical skill that the American people themselves have been caught in an international death trap. For nine months now, this administration has been carrying on a deliberate policy of mass starvation without any distinction between innocent and helpless and the guilty alike. The first issue has been and continues to be purely humanitarian. This vicious clique within this administration that has been responsible for the policies and practices which have made a madhouse of Central Europe has not only betrayed our American principles, but they have betrayed the GIs who have suffered and died, and they continue to betray the American GIs who have to continue their dirty work for them. The second issue is that is involved that the effect. Excuse me. The second is, issue that is involved is the effect this tragedy in Germany has already had on the other European countries. Those who have been responsible for this deliberate destruction of the German state and this criminal mass starvation of the German people have been so zealous in their hatred that all other interests and concerns have been subordinated for this one obsession of revenge. In order to accomplish this, it is mattered not only in liberated countries in Europe, they also suffered and starved. To this point, this clique of conspirators has addressed themselves. Germany is to be destroyed, they said. What happens to other countries of Europe in the process is of secondary importance. Senator Capehart's remarks were interdispersed with a mass of supporting evidence. In a speech to the U.S. Senate on December 3, 1945, Senator James Eastland of Mississippi spoke of the great difficulty he had encountered in gaining access to the official report on conditions in Germany. Senator Eastland stated, There appears to be a conspiracy of silence to conceal from our people the true picture of conditions in Europe, to secret from us the fact regarding conditions of the continent and information as to our policies toward the German people. Are there real facts withheld because our policies are so cruel that the American people would not endorse them? What have we to hide Mr. President? Why should these facts be withheld from the people of the United States? There could not possibly be any valid reason for secrecy. Are we following a policy of vindictive hatred? A policy which would not be endorsed by the American people as a whole if they knew true conditions? Mr. President, I would be less than honest if I did not state frankly that the picture is so much worse, so much more confused, that the American people must suspect that I do not know of any source that is capable of producing the complete factual accounts to which our policies have taken place. The truth is that the nations of Central, South, and Eastern Europe are adrift on a flood, on a adrift on a flood of anarchy and chaos. History also records that a savage minority, of bloody, bitter enders with his government, forced the acceptance of the br- brutal Mongothu, that was the one I talked about earlier—M-O-R-G-E-N-T-H-O-U plan with the president under. President, administration. I asked Mr. President, why in God's name did the administration accept it? Well, they accepted starving people. Right? This is all part of the plan, not the bug of the system, kids. So, recent developments have merely confirmed scores of earlier charges that this addleplated and vicious Montreal plan had torn Europe in two and left half of Germany incorporated in the ever-expanding sphere of influence of an Oriental totalitarian conspiracy. By continuing a policy which keeps Germany divided against itself, we are dividing the world against itself and turning loose across the face of Europe a power and an enslaving and degrading cruelty surpassing that of Hitler. The Senate warmly applauded Senator Langer's speech. Well, and the beat goes on, right kids? Okay. The Senate approved a resolution proposed by Senator Kenneth Wary of Nebraska to establish a group with a budget to study and report in detail the conditions in Europe in, excuse me, in Germany where he stated terrifying reports are filtering through the British, French and American occupied zones and even more gruesome reports from the Russian occupied zone revealing a horrifying picture of deliberate and wholesale starvation Weary criticized the Trump administration for doing nothing despite the pleas to intercession to prevent a major tragedy. Weary also questioned Governor LeMann, the person in charge of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Association, also known as the UNRRA, also known as the New World Order. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So this guy, I got spun off here, I'm kind of tired today. This guy, Lehman, he was, oh, Governor Lehman, I forget where he's from, Nebraska, I think. <laughs> um, he was in charge of this UN relief thing, okay? And he, he admitted that the UNA was not going to the starving Germans. Finally, where he said, the truth is that there are thousands upon thousands of tons Of military rations in our supply surplus stockpiles that have been spoiling right in the midst of starving population. The senator, Senator Langer, received new information which caused him to speak in the Senate on March the 26th, 1946. He said. We are caught in what has now unfolded as a savage and fanatical plot to destroy the German German people by visiting on them a punishment in kind for the atrocities of their leaders. Not only have the leaders of this plot permitted the whole world situation to get out of hand, but their determination to destroy the German people and the German nation No matter what the circumstances, to our moral principles, to our leadership in world affairs, to our Christian faith, to our allies, or to the whole future peace of the world, has become a world scandal. We have all seen a grim picture of the piled-up bodies uncovered by the American and British armies, and our hearts have been wrung with pity at the sight of such emaciation, reducing adults and even little children to mere skeletons. Yet now, in utter horror, we discover that our own policies have merely spread those same conditions even more widely than our former enemies. Senator Albert W. Hawkes of New Jersey urged President Truman to allow private relief packages to be sent to Germany to prevent mass starvation of the German people. Trump, in a reply dated December the 21st, 1945, that was only about six years before I was born, okay? Not that long ago. History repeats, remember that. So he replied in 1945 and stated, there is as yet no possibility of making deliveries of packages in Germany because the postal system and the communications and transportation systems of Germany are in state of total collapse. Our efforts have been directed particularly toward taking care of those who fought with us rather than against us. Norwegians, Belgians, the Dutch, the Greeks, the Poles, and the French. Eventually, the enemy countries will be given some attention. While we have no desire to be unduly cruel to Germany, I cannot feel any great sympathy for those who caused the death of so many human beings by starvation, disease, and outright murder, in addition to all the destruction and death of war. Perhaps eventually a decent government can be established in Germany so that Germany can again take place in the family of nations. I think that in the meantime, no one should be called upon to pay for Germany's misfortune except Germany itself. Until the misfortunes of those whom Germany oppressed are obliviated, it does not see right to divert our efforts to Germany itself. I admit that there. This is them talking. Keep that in mind, okay? I admit that there are, of course, many innocent people in Germany who had little to do with the Nazi terror. However, the administrative burden of trying to locate these people and treat them differently from the rest, which is almost inseparable. British intellectuals such as Bertrand Russell and Victor Gollancz also worked to publicize the suffering and mass starvation of the German people. Golancz, it's spelled G-O-L-L-A-N-C-Z. Subjected to the contrast he saw between the accommodations and food in the British officer's mess and the miserable half-starved hobbles outside. In March of 1946, the average calories per day in the British zone had fluctuated between 1,000 and 1,500. British authorities in Germany were proposing to cut the rations back to 1,000 calories a day. I think they were talking about this earlier in this piece, but I'm just reading. So, um, Golas pointed out that the inmates at the Bergen-Belsen toward the end of the war only had 800 calories per day, which was not much less than the British proposal. Golans made a six-week tour of the British zone in October and November of 1946. In January of 1947, Golans published a book called, it's titled, In Darkest Germany, to document what he saw on his trip. Assisted by a photographer, Golans included numerous pictures to allay skepticism of the veracity of his report. So he wanted pictures to prove what he was talking about. The pictures show Gallus standing behind naked boys suffering from malnutrition or holding a fully worn and unstable child, unusable child's shoe or comforting a crippled half-starved adult in his hovel. The point was to show Gallant's, the point was to show that Gallance had seen these things with his own eyes and had not merely accepted other people's reports. Golanz also wrote to a newspaper editor, Youth in Germany is being poisoned and renazified. We have all but lost the peace. Victor Golanz concluded, The plain fact is when spring is in the English air, we are starving, the German people. Others, including ourselves, are to keep or be given comforts, while the Germans lack the bare necessities of existence. If it is a choice between discomfort for another and suffering for the Germans, the Germans must suffer. If between suffering for another and death for the German, the Germans must die. Meanwhile, let me roll this down here. After the war had ended and some allied, excuse me, meanwhile, after, oh, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, months after the war had ended and the Allies had continued and the Allies had assumed complete control of the German government the Bishop of Chichester quoting a noted German pastor said thousands of bodies are hanging in the trees in the woods around Berlin and nobody bothers to cut them down thousands of corpses are carried into the sea by the ode and L.B. Rivers, E.L.B.E. Rivers. One doesn't notice it any longer. Thousands and thousands are starving on the highways. Children roam the highways alone. Their parents shot dead and lost. Let me see what I'm doing time here. Um, I'll keep going. Um, so, I can find where I was. Okay. And this section is titled Starvation Policies Continue. Despite the efforts of U.S. Senators and British humanitarians, the Allied starvation policies continued through 1946 and into 1947. A group of German doctors reported in 1947 that the actual daily calorie ration issued for three months in the Ruhr section of the British zone averaged only 800 calories per person. Dr. Guptav Stolfer, a member of the Hoover Commission fact-finding team, reported that the ration in both the British and American zones for a long time in 1946 and 1947 dropped to between 700 and 1,200 calories per day. U.S. Secretary of War Robert Patterson wrote to U.S. Secretary of State George C. Marshall concerning the famine in Germany in 1947. Our occupation has no chance of success if these famine conditions continue. The state of affair has been foreseen, and I have urged repeatedly that priority be recognized for food shipments to Germany. The basis for the priority is the is the prevention of famine in the U.S.-U.K. zones of Germany. Germans are still being operated under the Mokthon Plan and the Potsdam Agreement. These two programs shared a crucial conceptual flaw. Central to both schemes was the paradoxical policy of transforming Germany into an agricultural economy while at the same time depriving Germany of her most valuable agricultural regions and displacing the population of these regions into rump Germany. These policies made it possible for Germany to feed her population. Germany would have to industrialize to be able to export something to buy a minimum diet for her people. By taking away a quarter of Germany's arable land the Allies created a situation in which Germany's existence would necessarily be even more dependent on industrialization than before the war. The economic disruptions caused by Germany's zonal partition also hurt the German economy. The Soviet zone orientated itself more and more toward the east and continued to extract maximum reparations out of its zone. The French zone stagnated because of France's unwillingness to cooperate in any and all German program until the question of the SAR was solved in France's favor. I don't know what the SAR is. It's spelled S-A-A-R. France also feared a revival of Germany's economic strength. All about the money. The refusal to feed Germans... Or allow anyone else to feed them gave rise to extremely negative feelings among Germans toward the Allies. Karl Zuckmeyer reported conversations he, he reported conversations he overhead, overheard in bread lines in the American zone. Yes, Hitler was bad, our war was wrong, but now they are doing the same thing to us, and they are all the same. There is no difference. They want to enslave Germany in exactly the same way Hitler wanted to enslave the Poles. Now we are the Jews, the inferior race. They are letting us starve intentionally. Can't you see that this is their plan? They take away all of our sources of income and let us die slowly. The gas chambers work quicker. German Protestant church president and former Dachau prisoner, spoke of the suffering and starvation of Germans after the war. He went on to say, he said to an American audience when he toured the United States from 1946 to 1947, he went on to say, the offices of our American military government are very nicely and cozily heated, and our military government people live a good life as far as nourishment and everything else. Even housing is concerned. But they don't know how people really think and react who are hungry, who are on the way to starving. Nora also said Germans are receiving no better than the lowest Russian ration, ration ever heard of in a Jewish or, excuse me, Nazi concentration camp. Although Nora raised more money than expected from the American tour. So this guy went on a tour talking about this stuff, okay? He was disappointed in its outcome because he was not able to improve U.S. occupation policies in Germany. After months in America, Noem's return to war-ravaged Germany came as a shock. So when he returned, this is his quote, everything is dual, everything is dual. The war is over, but you feel it everywhere, in the cold which is still harboring in the rooms, especially in this old castle with its thick stone walls. The water pipes are broken, no running water in kitchen or toilet. Sitting at my desk, I shiver from cold even now, and the place where I feel some relief is once again in the bed. The food situation is more than difficult. And I scarcely dare to take a slice of bread, thinking that Hertha, Tini, and Herman, his, which were his children, are far more in needing of habit than I, and I can't help feeling guilty about being so well-fed in the United States. The whole aspect of life is grim and dark, and you see the traces of progressive starvation in every face you come to see. The physical and emotional toll of hunger, cold, and disillusionment made life in Germany intolerable for Neumann, his wife, and they bemoaned when they got back to Germany from Africa Germany from America, that it was much easier there than here. He said that if things don't improve this is a guy who just returned, he said I would prefer to be back in my cell number 31 at Dachau, Norling blamed. Norling blamed the followers of the Morgenthau Plan who had moved their headquarters from Washington to the American Zone. So this whole plan is what kicked a lot of this into gear here, right? They always have these plans, right? So so there was this other letter. In another letter to Turner in the fall of 1947, Nimolar wrote, the coming winter will be a very severe test for us all the rations in fat and meat have been cut again to 25 grams of butter and 100 grams of meat a week and no potatoes the normal cons- consumer probably will die in this winter and that jew and that jew in the occupation forces will have been right will will have been right to answer my question what would become of too many people in the West zone saying, don't worry, we shall look after that, and the problem will be solved in quite a natural way. Normer understood the Jewish officials' phrase, a natural way, to mean death by starvation. What led to the Allied, Western allies to a, a revision of their occupation policy in Germany was the fear of a communist takeover in Europe. The Western allies feared that if Germany remained, Europe's slum, social unrest would force it into, a communi- into the communist camp and the rest of Europe would follow. The anti-communists in Poland had already been forced out of power and only a few anti-communists escaped to, satisfi- to safety. Similar undemocratic developments were subverting Romania, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. The communist parties in France and Italy were gaining strength, and it caused several general strikes. Europe was ripe for a communist takeover, and the Western allies... Now, you do remember the part I've been talking about, that they uh, cooked up communism and Marxism stuff in Germany before all this got started, so just keep that in mind as I'm reading this stuff here. So with a lot more information, we can come with a lot more intelligent conclusions here, right kids? So yeah, um, the threat of a communist takeover in Europe had long been recognized by allied leaders. This guy, um, is, I don't, I'm too tired. He stated to General George Patton at a dinner in Paris in August of 1945. It is indeed unfortunate that the English and Americans have destroyed the only sound country in Europe, and I do not mean France. Therefore, the road is now open for the advent of Russian communism. Whew, okay, uh, Patton himself had warned of the danger of Russian communism resulting from the destruction of Germany. People used to try to tell me that Patton was killed because he was so on site with all this stuff. See how it all works? Anyway, so Patton stated, What we are doing is to utterly destroy the only semi-modern state in Europe so that Russians can swallow the whole. What we are doing is to utterly destroy the only semi-modern state in Europe. Oh, so the Russians can get it. So, yeah, he's warning against don't let the Russians get it. And After an unsuccessful Moscow meeting in the Council of Foreign Ministers in March of 1947, the Western allies realized the necessity of setting a new course independent of the Soviet Union. George F. Kinman observed, it was plain that the Soviet leaders had a political interest in seeing the economies of Western Union people fail under anything other than communist leadership. Remember, in the beginning, these three people were all f- friends, right? The US, UK, and Russia. So, the European Recovery Program, better known as the Marshall Plan was originally envisioned by U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall to promote the economic recovery of Europe on both sides of the Iron Curtain. However, the Soviet Union took steps to prevent any Eastern European countries from participating in the Marshall Plan. The Soviet Union organized a rival program for recovery in Eastern Europe known as the Molotov Plan, like Molotov cocktails, M-O-L-T-O. Molotov. The Soviet-dominated Company form urged communists everywhere to help defeat the Marshall Plan, which it described as an instrument for world domination for by America imperialism. I think they were onto something, weren't they? The Marshall Plan withstood the Soviet challenge for the period from April the third nineteen forty eight, two years before I was born, not that long ago, until June the thirtieth, nineteen fifty two, one year after I arrived in this hell pit, <laughs> the Marshall Plan allocated three in a three point one seven six billion to the United Kingdom. Oh they took care of all their friends now, didn't they? <laughs> so Okay, they allocated three point one seven six billion to the United Kingdom, um, two point seven oh six billion to France because by now they have all the American citizens thinking these were the people they needed to help. Right? <laughs> they they have, they have them convinced they needed the help, not that they were the perpetuators of all this stuff. So okay, let me get back here. This is pretty crazy. Um, so three point one seven six to the United Kingdom, two point seven Billion to France, 1.474 billion to Italy, <laughs> only 1.389 billion went to West Germany, of which Germany later repaid approximately 1 billion. However, the German economy was helped the most by the aid. Well, I don't know how that worked out, but anyways. One commentator described the effect of the Marshall Plan on West Germany. <coughs> he went on to say, The effects have been prodigious, equal to no other European country. Although Germany only got a relatively small portion of the Marshall Plan aid, Europe received at all $20 billion from the United States. In 1954, the figures per capita had amounted to $39, $39 for Germany, oh yeah, okay, so this is what, $39 for Germany, as against $72, um, $72 for France, <clears throat> $77 for England, $33 for Italy, $104 for Australia, uh, Austria. Funny how they divide all this money up, right? Austria was part of Germany, right? So, But in Germany, the help came at precisely the right time when the accumulated pressures for both physical and psychological reconstruction had reached a bur- bursting point. The effect of the Marshall Plan... I'm just going to keep rolling along here. I'm pretty close to the end, so... The effect of the Marshall Plan in Germany was almost magical. Imagine how that happened, right? The German economy was plainly reviving within months, within a year. It was expanding faster than any other economy in Europe. And within a decade, Germany was close to the richest country in Europe. So pretty crazy how that happened, right? Beat them all alive, tore their country apart, and then the margin... They claim the Marshall Plan was almost magical. The growth of Germany's economy put an end to the starvation of the German people. According to General Maurice Pope, who in excuse me, <laughs> 1948, he was with the Canadian military mission in Germany, he said, conditions improved overnight. Soon, the modest corner grocery store was displaying delicacies of all kinds and at quite reasonable prices. So this was, this Maurice person said this, in 1948, okay? The next segment of this article is titled, How Many Germans Starved to Death After World War II? The death rate figures reported in the U.S. military governor reports indicate that very few Germans died among the expelled or non-expelled Germans of the three western zones. These widely these widely disseminated U.S. military governor reports have been accepted by most historians and are the basis for the belief today that the death rate among Germans was not unusually high after World War II. wonder what they mean by unusually high, right? The falsivity of these reports is shown by comparing the 1947 report, which was a year of extreme starvation and misery, remembered by Germans as the hunger year, to other peacetime years in Germany. The U.S. military governor reported in December of 1947, they stated that the death rate among German civilians was 12.1 per per year per thousand. That is only slightly higher than the death rate among Germans before the war and is less than the death rate of 12.2 thousand per year during the two prosperous years of 1968 and 1969. The death rate figure of the 1947 US military governor report of 12.1 per 1000 cannot possibly be accurate. The reality is that millions of resident German citizens died after the end of World War II. James Bucky report estimates 5.7 million Germans already residing in Germany, died from the starvation policies implemented by the Allies after the war. Barkay details how this 5.7 million deaths is calculated. The population of all occupied Germany in 1946 was 65 million, according to the census prepared under the ACC. That would be the... I don't remember what ACC is, but... According... Excuse me. The returning prisoners who were added to the population in the period October 46 to September 1950 numbered 2.6 million. They rounded that up. According to records in the archives of the four principal allies, births, according to the official statistic agency, added another 4.1 million newcomers to Germany. The expellees arriving totaled 6 million. Thus, the total population in 1950, before losses, would have been 77 million, according to the Allies themselves. Deaths officially recorded in the period 1946 to 1950 were 3.2 million, according to the UN yearbook and the German government. Immigration was about 600,000, according to the German government. Thus, the population found should have been 73 million. But the census of 1950, done by the German government, under Allied supervision, found only 68 million. There was a shortage of over 5,710,000 people, according to the official Allied figures, rounded up to 57 million people five million seven hundred thousand people so yeah it looks like the numbers got a little bit fudged now didn't they okay um so this back's calculations have been confirmed by anthony b miller who is a world famous epidemiologist and head of the department of Preventive medicine and biostatistics at the university of toronto not good for these people right Miller read the whole work, including the documents, and checked the statistics, which he said confirms the validity of Baroque's calculations. Miller states, These deaths appear to have resulted directly or indirectly from these semi-starvation food rations that were all that were, all that were available to the majority of the German population during this time period conclusion The millions of Germans who starved to death did not constitute the entire story of the crime that was committed on Germany after World War II. German women who had repeatedly who had been repeatedly raped by allied soldiers had to bear the physical and psychological scars for the rest of their lives. Millions of German expellees who lost all of their real estate and most of their personal property were never compensated by the Allies. Instead, they had to live in abject poverty in Germany after being expelled from their homes. Millions of other Germans had their property stolen or destroyed by Allied soldiers. The Allied post war treatment of Germany is surely one of the most brutal, criminal, and unreported tragedies in world history.
6: At the end of World War II, the Soviets were holding Berlin under siege. In order to save millions of people from starvation, the US and allies devised a plan to airlift in food. One American pilot decided to take it a step further. He delivered candy.
5: My name is Gail Halverson, but I'm known as the Berlin Candy Bomber. I didn't think that the airlift would last very long, so I thought I'd better get a movie of this operation before they send me home.
6: One day, while filming the planes taking off and landing, Gail became aware that there was some young children watching him. He went over to talk to them, and after a while, he realized,
5: Dummy, don't you know kids like chocolate? And I knew that they had not had chocolate in the stores in Berlin for two years. And I reached used my pocket and I, all I had was two sticks of Wrigley's double mint gum. And I broke the two sticks in half, gave it to the kids. Of, and the kids with half a stick tore off the wrapper in the thin strips and passed it to those without gum. And those who re- received the wrappers put it up their nose and smelled a piece of wrapper.
6: Inspired by their generosity, he decided that next flight, he would drop them chocolate and candy via parachute from the plane.
5: They said, how do we know what, what airplane you're in? And so I said, when I come over the airfield, I'll wiggle the wings of that big airplane. And they said, oh, great.
6: True to his word, the next day, Gail began to drop the packages. What started with just two sticks of gum eventually turned into 23 tons of chocolate.
5: From then on, I was known in the press and all the kids in Berlin, that's Uncle Wiggly Wings.
6: And in case you were wondering if the Candy Bomber still has a
5: sweet tooth. Oh yeah, I still eat chocolate. I like dark chocolate.
0: off here I am going to edit something in here because I'd like to address the um, obvious elephant in the room I thought I would talk about it in the next show but I don't like to put things off if you haven't noticed that about me I'm, I'm all about continuing to put one foot in front of the other foot no matter how often I fall down so it's what I've had to do all these years when people said oh that's crazy psychopaths aren't really a problem so anyhow so yeah so I um, I would like to close with this because this is on a much happier note um, because I was ranting and raving in this show about them. I still haven't listened to the whole show yet. I don't listen to the show until it gets done. And um, I was ranting and raving about what cowards they are, okay? So the next show, I'll be able to have a little fun. But let me tell you why here first. This is actually kind of funny because you realize, excuse me, in 19, excuse me, (laughs) in 19, in 2017 was when I started sharing my work um, on social media and that was just through a podcast. And here's the funny part. I was sixty six years old. <laughs> you know, then when those numbers sixes <laughs> I was born on April the twenty seventh, nineteen fifty one. So that made me sixty six years old in twenty seventeen. So yes, I had to I had to tell myself several things because you know I had turned down offers to sell my book, which would have ended up being a horrific deal for me because because they wanted to turn it into a podcast and at the time it was very misunderstood and that's the reason why i don't have much support from family because it made me look like i was like really lazy but the reason i turned down turning my book into a podcast produced by somebody else was because they simply would have owned me okay and after having gone through five years of a lawsuit against intel over them stealing from me I was nervous to just sign over my rights to a big company, okay? I'm in Nebraska, how could I have had attorneys and legal help to go against a contract from somebody in the business, right? And I decided that it was a bad idea. And I stick by my word, because um, it would have been a horrible idea. Just think about it. How long do you think they would have kept me around once I started tripping over certain wires, okay? Would they really want me on air talking about the U.S. military being run by psychopaths? (laughs) Would they have allowed any of that? Of course not. So the bottom line is I would have made a ton of money for a year or so until I started getting more into the research that I've been currently sharing (laughs) with everybody online, okay? So that definitely would not have worked out. You know, you can't always trade everything for money, kids. It doesn't always work that way, at least for me it doesn't. But anyway, so yeah, so at 66 years old, I had to tell myself that in order for this to work, because I thought, well, what could be so hard about doing a podcast? (laughs) That I decided, what would be so hard about it? Well, it was very difficult because, you know, the uh, the first 70 shows I recorded were simply to get people to be able to I knew that I wasn't going to be around for very long okay because I my because of all the eugenics in this country I knew that my days were numbered so I first set out to record oh the first 70 or 80 episodes every Tuesday I did a show and the segments were to help people in the future because so many victims had been hurt by thera- the therapy process that I wanted to lay out the thought process for how how they could think about things to evaluate if they truly had a psychopath in their life. So that would be there forever because I would record it, right? Well, then I thought, well, I'll just start doing these other shows. But you know, the first year and a half, I never engaged on YouTube. We were just, I was just uploading to there, but it was a podcast. I don't think, I never even looked at the comments on YouTube. I I really, it never dawned on me. (laughs) I just had this idea that I would share my research online. And it was only when I started to do the actual videos on youtube because i thought well there's other areas that i can explore well where the tripwire was for me was i was going through the um there's all this talk about them being pedophiles and all this kind of stuff so in order to process this information i don't remember it's here somewhere i went through the dm5 and i was quite alarmed to find that (coughs) what the thing was what the status was as recorded by the DM-5, about what their diagnostic criteria was for pedophiles. Well, that set me off on this whole path. So I, at that point, I even said it online many times that I would get to the bottom of what's going on with the children. So I have just been dashing along ever since then, because that's my personality. But the other side of my personality is I can very much be like a bull in a china shop, <laughs> when I get going on something so well it's taken that mix of personality. so I could go from being slow and plotting and just keeping one foot in front of the next to all of a sudden I'll break out into the bull in the china shop so and I agreed that I was not going to be when I decided to pull back from YouTube and simply focus on the audio part of my work recording that part it's allowed me to get so much more done but the agreement I made with myself and with the viewers was that it was going to be research as I went along raw unfiltered and that's the way it was going to be well this show was definitely raw and unfiltered yes it was very emotionally difficult um, I've been rallying about this children and women and elderly thing that they've been against and I I always try to think about why that reaction happened to me the tripwire in my brain was I kept, um, reading those words. You know, the women, the children, and the elderly, and it just tripped the wires in my head. That's what it was. So anyway, so onward and upward. So yeah, so I'm old. My system is really going downhill fast. So no, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna edit it out, and I'm not gonna get in the habit of editing. I said I wasn't gonna edit. <laughs> I'm Not going to. So, but here's here's the deal about the next show because I've been ranting on this show about their, um, being such cowards, right? Well, here's the interesting part, okay? The people at the top, the people that are the truly the top people, okay? The Black Rocks, the Black Stones, those people, okay? They all are present as male, right? Because you see them, right? Larry Fink is, looks like a man, right? Well, now, I have not let me how I say, this. <clears throat> I clearly have not <laughs> examined any of these people, but I've done enough work to understand how these hormones work and this in vitro stuff, which I'll get to hopefully one of these days, um, uh, that they don't have penises, okay? Let's call a spade a spade. And I'm not going to get into a bunch of dick jokes, but, <laughs> but, but, but you have to kind of admit there's something weird about this whole group of people, right? Um that, you know, all the, in the next show, I'll be talking about the phallic symbols all over, okay? Um, they call them obliques, O-B-L-E-S-I-K, something like that, obliques, okay? That means phallic symbols, okay? And they erected these phallic symbols in the three target areas that I've been looking at, Washington, D.C., the Vatican, and City of London, okay? um they're big on these phallic symbols as a matter of fact look at the amazon logo if that doesn't if that doesn't look like a phallic symbol to you i don't know maybe i've just got a converted mind at this point but yeah (coughs) excuse me god (coughs) i'm so dumb about this recording stuff i've never really learned all about it i thought i knew how to turn off the microphone and, and pause it and when I tried it the one time, I just coughed full blast into the microphone. I really didn't have it turned off. So anyway, so so, this phallic symbol thing, okay. I didn't put them there. You didn't put them there. But these people have phallic symbols all over the place. And, and there's a reason for it. And there's a reason why they're in some, some places. And there's also a very weirdo thing that I found out that, <laughs> you know, all those churches have all those steeples Well, those steeples are also phallic symbols. So yeah, it's something else. These, um, I don't know where I come up with this stuff because what you need to understand is us boomer people, okay. We were raised in a very distinct way, okay. We all had allowances, which gave us money to go take LSD and go to those concerts. (laughs) Um, We were pretty much range, free range. I mean, we left the house in the morning. (laughs) and we came back in time for dinner, and uh, no one had really much of a clue where we were. I mean, when my dad was stationed in Spain, we lived on base housing outside of Madrid, and my friends and I, we would hop on the bus and go into Madrid for the day. We would go into Madrid for the night to go to the movies and stuff, and I was like, oh, I don't know, 9 to 12 years old, and none of this behavior was questioned. I wasn't sneaking around. My parents knew that I was heading off to Madrid, (laughs) So, yeah, we were pretty free range, but I think it gave me a lot of uh, spirit because, you know, I learned how to adapt and how (laughs) how to move away from trouble and not run home, right? So, yeah, we were raised very differently. But one thing we weren't raised to do was to swear. So, yeah, in this last show, I've been really ripping it loose. But, no, we weren't our parents as kids in that generation. Our parents didn't swear in front of us. My dad would say things like, um, there's little pictures in the room, or little pictures have big ears. In other words, because the adults just didn't swear and stuff around us. I don't think they necessarily swore. So, yeah, so I won't be telling necessarily dick jokes, (laughs) but I (laughs) I don't know where I come up with this stuff. Because when I used to work in Silicon Valley, part of what I did was have to go on site to work with construction crews because I worked in the exhibit industry, right? So the exhibits would get put up in different cities, so... I had to go to those cities to supervise the construction, so I went from the marketing side to actually being on site working with construction workers. So workers, <clears throat> and obviously it could be very tough at time when you're dealing in heavily union cities. Well, now I know a lot more about why because <laughs> these people are the mafia, right? So anyway, so um, yeah, so in these heavily unionized cities, uh, you know, you'd have to survive there. <clears throat> and um, so I don't know where I heard this word from. Okay, I don't want to over-explain it, but. Um, after I recorded this show that we're listening to now, I, I was wondering why I went off so drastically and it was because of the, (coughs) excuse me, them being such predators, right? Talk about predators, women, children, and the elderly, right? So I don't know where this word came from, but actually it is a word. And I thought to myself, I thought they really are dickless wonders, (laughs) Well, there there actually is an expression, and I'm leading up to that by all this explanation, because no, the show's not going to be about a bunch of dick jokes, but I do find it quite ironic that there's phallic symbols all over the place, and these people don't have dicks themselves, okay? So I believe they are dickless wonders, okay? They're cowards, and they're dickless wonders, so I'll leave it at that. I will look forward to seeing you in the next show. <clears throat> I just wanted to address this now instead of waiting for the next show, and uh, because that's how I roll. And uh, you know, I did that show about I don't I don't talk about things that I'm just ignoring myself. Like, you know, I can be a coward sometimes, but I but I push myself to not be a coward. I can be lazy sometimes, but I push myself to keep putting one foot in front of the other. This isn't my home, okay? This isn't where I belong. I'm looking forward to going to wherever it is that I belong. I hesitate to use words like heaven and hell because of them. But, yeah, this isn't my place where I belong, but this is the place where I have elected to be. None of us were just randomly tossed down here, okay? This is like the big finale of the biggest grand show on earth right now, okay? This is the stage is set for whatever is going to happen between these people and our creator, okay? The stage is getting set. There's going to be a lot of turmoil ahead. We need to keep our heads about ourselves. We need to also have a certain amount of humor about it all. We're not going to be able to change what's ahead. We're going to need to be able to adapt to what's ahead and keep moving forward. That's my plan, at least, okay? And, you know, over time, of course I've been concerned because I'm pretty well handicapped. So I think, wow, all this stuff coming up, I really can't run. (laughs) But it's okay. It's okay. This This isn't permanent. This is not permanent. This is one big stage. And we're dealing with a bunch of dickless wonders (laughs) who are really cowards. Talk to you on the next show. Well, it's time to say goodbye. I'm kind of at a loss for words today. Probably something people have prayed for for a long time to hear me out of words, but um, yeah. Actually, what I'll be doing for next Tuesday, I had pretty much the show pretty much all written about um, the structure of these people. And yes, it started around the early 1800s, it started out of Italy got them nailed okay so I will be getting back to that and for some reason I don't know why because I totally follow my instincts I was just about done writing the show and getting ready to record it and I just made a sharp veer off into Germany because as you may or might not know I was a very um I watched a lot of World War II documentaries like just about every one that came out and uh well what I read to you today certainly got missed in all those documentaries see how it works? So. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. And um, you know, the United States, I've been saying this for a long time and I will reiterate one more time, this is the biggest human experiment and we are the experiment ground after Germany. So I don't know how to um, express it any other way. Clearly their patterns um, lead me to make these comments. Um, I've got all these, you know, Years of research put into this, and this is 100% of what I've seen. I keep going back to the 1800s, and this group came from the 1800s. They were around before, but there was a big, big change around mid-1800s. So, did any of this world exist before that? I really do not know. The Tartaria people are trying to convince us that, well, they were shooting electricity off of buildings and all this other kind of garbage. That is... DARPA stories, if I've ever read them, okay. I believe we were very advanced from where we came from and we didn't need to shoot electricity off buildings and stuff like that, so. Yeah, so take it for whatever it is. I mean, there's a a possibility that this all got taken over. Was there something before? I don't really know. I can't engage myself back that far because there's so much to cover right now that I see the hugest turning point mid-1800s. And I will be back to explain more to you next Tuesday. So, until then, be safe out there, kids, and goodbye for now.
6: Cotton candy. Who knew sugar and air could taste so sweet? Well, a guy named James Morrison, an amateur inventor whose occupation and taste buds didn't exactly align. He was a dentist, and during his lifetime, James even became the president of the Tennessee Dental Association.
4: Don't forget to floss.
6: But he was also a confectionery enthusiast with a passion for culinary advancement. He paired with John C. Waltham, an old friend and fellow confectioner. Together, the two designed and co-patented what they called the electronic candy machine. The device rapidly spun and melted sugar through small holes until it was fluffy and nearly 70% air. They called the new treat Fairy Floss. They introduced their product at the 1904 World's Fair, selling it in small wooden boxes for 25 cents each. That's about $6 today. Fairy Floss was a huge success. In six months, they sold over 68,000 boxes, grossing in today's money around $440,000. But despite the success of the sugar-spun business, Morrison returned to his day job as a dentist. So next time the dentist tells you you're eating too many sugary treats, well, blame him.